Hey, my name is Josh Korak. I'm a mental health counselor in the Northern Colorado area. In this space, I get the chance to interview professionals in the field, talk about mental illness, self-care, and so much more. With this show, I ask you to join me in doing what one of my favorite philosophers, a Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, says. Smile, breathe, and go slowly. This is Care with Korak. It's Josh. This is Kareth Gorak. Glad to have you back and listening. I know it's been a little bit. I started to realize that maybe doing episodes weekly was a little bit of a stretch for where I'm at with life right now. I currently am finishing up my grad program, and so I'm actually finished this weekend. So pretty soon you will be listening to uh, the same Josh, pretty much, <laughs> but with uh, a little bit different letters behind his name. So that is exciting, but it has been a bit of a grind. And so I am grateful for your patience, and I hope that uh, I have a couple of episodes coming out that will be um, refreshing and informative for the end of the year. So... As a reminder, these last few episodes that I'm doing will be with some of the great mentors I've had over the years, and this week is no different. This week we have Zach. Zach Krieger uh, was born and raised in Broomfield, just like me. Zach went to Biola University for his undergraduate in Christian education and went even further for his master's in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. For the past 14 plus years, Zach has been leading and has been the area director for Broomfield Adams County Young Life. Zach has also had experience working as an EMT and firefighter, providing input with the Adams County Youth Initiative and the Broomfield Court's Best Practice Committee. first met Zach when I was in high school as a student in Young Life. He was someone I looked up to from the moment I met him, literally because the man is an absolute giant. But for someone so big, he has the kindest heart. Zach has always had a passion for loving those who most of us struggle to love, adolescents. He has made a career out of building relationships, being intentional, and going deeper in relationship with these kids. And I honestly couldn't think of anyone better to have on the show to talk about mental health when it comes to adolescents. I had a brief three-year stint in college uh, leading Young Life, two of those years where I co-led with Zach. Those two years, I learned so much about working with kids, and it has definitely shaped my personal mental health practice with adolescents. Zach was also just a big mentor in my personal and professional development, and really helped me to sort through my future aspirations when I was younger. I've been honored to call him a brother, and I'm very fortunate that he has been a part of my life. In this episode, Zach and I talk about being a mentor for adolescents. Uh, We talk about faith and spirituality in relation to mental health. And then we also talk about adverse childhood experiences. Plus, we have a very special guest early on in the show. I'll give you a hint. It's my puppy. Listen in to find out more. For more mental health content, follow me on social media at Josh Korak. If you've been enjoying the show, please go give the show a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. 
and make sure to share with your friends. This is how I know that the show is making a difference and whether I should keep doing this or if I should pursue other ways to give back to the community. So please let me know what you think and what I could do differently. If you're following me on social media at Josh Korak, uh, keep an eye out in the next month or two. Might be working on some different projects here soon. Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. This is Kareth Korak with Zachary Krieger. Well, hey, Zach, how's it going? Good. Are we live? We're live. Is it happening right now? Yeah, we're good to go. My mom always said I had a great face for radio. (laughs) Well, it's a good thing we're not recording this video. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. I'm actually trying to work on... um, I just got approved. So the... I mean, this is total tangent, but I just got approved by the podcasting uh, system, whatever you want to call it. It's anchor. It's the death star. Yeah. The death star. Yeah. Yeah. We'll call it that. Um, they just started doing video podcasting actually. So if I can figure out a way to record video. Yeah. Well, you probably don't want me back for video, but like get Trey Stubbs (laughs) or one of those guys. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) You you do have that face for radio. (laughs) Thanks, Josh. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, we got Zach Krieger. Hey. Hi, everyone. Hi, crazy fans out there in the universe. (laughs) My like 12 fans. Yeah. Um, dude, I'm so glad you're here. It's good to reconnect as always. Um, yeah, I'm very honored that you took some time out of your busy schedule. Oh, delighted. To Anything come for Josh speak. Korak. Anything. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I mean, I'm already going to have a little bit of an introduction in the beginning of the episode, but why don't you... Oh, and we got Luna on the show. Hey, Luna. Luna. Hey, <laughs> Luna, speak. Speak. <laughs> yes. Lie down. Whoa. I, I, I know. You were so sassy. Go lay down. Man, she's licking the mic. <laughs> all right, hey, can you lie down? She's kissing all your fans out there. Oh, she's there, giving so. some lovely doggy kisses. She's been loved by Luna. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, boy. Well, she might be running around during the episode, but right now she is settling on my lap. So, so Zach, um, why don't you start off by just telling a little bit about yourself uh, and kind of where you've come and where you're at now. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Zach Krieger, I am a husband of one and a father of three, and that's the way we like it. (laughs) And um, my wife, Ashley, is a counselor therapist. She works over at Children's Hospital, um, and she is awesome. She and I met at Biola University, which is a little Christian school in Los Angeles. And I um, went to Biola from Denver. I grew up here in Bro- the Broomfield area, and she's a Kansas kiddo. And so we were really good friends at, at college, and right towards the end of college, it was like, you are too cool to let you get away. And she mm-hmm. was planning on going right into her master's program um, at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I twisted her arm into Denver Seminary, and we got married right after she oh, finished there. Yeah. I didn't know she went to Denver some. Yeah, yeah. man, she's fancy. Yeah. She, we have we have two seminary degrees in our house. It's oh, terrifying. So. You guys are yeah. You just are. <laughs> our kids don't. You're on have top a of chance. the world. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so and then yeah, we have three boys: Brogan, Deacon, and Oaks. And Best they're names. dude, they're they're amazing. Being a dad is my favorite <laughs> job I've ever had. I was just talking with my friend Ben the other day, and. 
and just the ways that you see God come alive um, as as you're parenting and being a dad. Like, there's just so many moments where I feel like the Holy Spirit just kind of ducks in for a second and says, pay attention, like, because what you're doing with your kiddo, like, this is what I'm doing with you right now. It's so cool. So, mm. so I get to be a dad, um, and I, let's see, what else? Also, interesting little tidbit is um, we live multi-generationally in our family. So yeah, we bought a right. house with Ashley's parents um, about five years ago. And we're pretty sure it was going to be a good idea. And in the long run, it's been awesome. And I think one of those other like really cool things to our life that you, you start to appreciate for most of human civilization, this is how people have done it. And yeah. so they're a huge part of our day-to-day life. And then my parents and most of my family all live very close by. So <clears throat> super tight family. And um, man, Josh, I, I am super lucky. <laughs> I grew up with a mom and a dad who loved Jesus and grew up going to church and grew up going to Awanas and memorizing the Bible. And I, all these mm. building blocks were there. And I think for me, it was it was when I was a teenager. It was my sophomore year of high school. I was in a small group. I had a really incredible mentor, Todd King, um, who was our youth pastor also, but took me and a bunch of my buddies under his wing and said, I want to I teach you guys how to follow Jesus. And we thought we were doing it already. And then he started talking about things like spiritual disciplines. And he, he had this thing of like, there's a relationship with Jesus. And we'd never heard about anything like that before. And mm. the big the big turnkey for me was one, one night he said, you want to come run dodgeball for the middle school youth group? Um, I was like, sure. And it just so happened that that night they didn't have anybody to ask these three questions of these sixth grade boys at the end of the night. And of course, you know, turned to me and my best friend, Kenny, and I'm like, hey, I know you just came for dodgeball, but can you sit with these dudes? And mm driving home that night was like, it was the first time anybody had asked me to do anything important in my life. And even as a 16 year old, I could, I could verbalize like there were ripple effects into eternity that started that night for me Mm -hmm. and for those kids. And, and I just, it just, it got the bug in me bad of, I want to give my life away to, to helping people see Jesus and know Jesus. And it wasn't necessarily a call to vocational ministry right out of the gate, but it was a, it was an understanding of Jesus that he, it's not, you cannot just say that you follow Jesus and not be about people. You have to be about people and, inter, and engaging relationships and interacting and mentoring and discipling. And that's become a huge, huge piece of who I am and what I get excited about when I consider the kingdom of heaven. So where did that lead you? Yeah, so I I was pretty set to go play football in college um, and study business and be a millionaire by forty and retire yeah, young naturally. and all, all the things you know yeah, all like the good the, things the American dream and and really in that time I was like I want to study the Bible and I, I want to mm. know more about this and and just see how deep this hole goes and um, so that led me to Biola um, Biola actually my sophomore year you're there really felt strongly the Lord say, don't work vocationally in the church. That's not what I have for you right now. And I, I was like, I, I thought I was going to be a youth pastor. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think he was really, for me, being a church kid, growing up in the church, um, I was really good at kind of what I would call like a foxhole Christianity. Um, and I think he... In that season, he was really wanting to push me outside of the church and outside of just hanging out with Christians all the time. And and so kind of went back to the drawing board. And the job that came to the surface as I was wrapping up college was to be a firefighter. Um, So I moved back home and got on with the Arvada Fire Department. I was working in the ER um, up here at Good Sam Mm -hmm. in, in the Broomfield area and was having a ball. And I think really... 
was just in the world and with people and just falling in love with with yeah. people who were not like me and didn't go to church or didn't go to a private Christian Bible mm-hmm. school. <laughs> and then I think just learning how do you just be a person that loves people and not just have, not see the world as like their sides or there's something that you need to protect or buffer yourself from, but that you can be fully integrated and live in a world with all different kinds of people, with all different kinds of worldviews and be very relationally connected to all of those people yeah. and, and walk the walk of Jesus. And, oh, it was so special. And so in the midst of that time, um, there was still this piece swirling in me of, um, I love being with kids. I love talking about Jesus. I knew I wasn't supposed to do that vocationally in the church. And um, so <laughs> firefighting was, I was having a ball. Ashley and I had just gotten married, um, but it was just nagging. Like, I don't think this is totally it where, where God wants me to land. And yeah. and so um, my, my aunt, we were living down in Littleton, at the time. And, and my aunt had called and said, Hey, our kids baseball coach is the area director for a ministry that works with teenagers, not in the church. You'd love him. Mm. You should have coffee. And I was like, sure. sounds great. What's the ministry? And she said, <laughs> it's young life. <laughs> and I, I knew young life when I was in high school at Broomfield. High, there were a couple guys, my junior year that would drive to Boulder. That was the closest young life club yeah, that we had. Right. And they were like true blue young life dudes. Like yeah. every Friday or Saturday night, I was like, Hey, here's the parties we're going to and the girls and the drinking, all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and every Monday in the locker room it was like, Hey man, do you want to go to young life? And I just figured if they liked going to it, it probably wasn't a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, and I had a couple friends in college and they, they were these hyper relational, fun loving, didn't take anything mm-hmm. very seriously. People that I'd constantly be barking at to like get their homework done. Right. <laughs> and so I knew enough to be like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do young life. And she wore me down um, over several months and I ended up having coffee. I, was, I told him when I walked in, it's, I'm here for an hour and then I'm out. Like, tell me mm-hmm. what you can about young life. Four hours later, we walked out of Starbucks mm-hmm. and my mind was blown that the way that for at that point, 75 years, Young Life had been engaging teenagers and the way that they talked about Jesus, the way they viewed discipleship. There were so many things for me that I, I was just pounding my fist on the table going, yes, I didn't know anybody did it like this. And yeah. this resonates so closely with my heart and where I feel like my calling is to be with lost kids talking about Jesus, not in the church. This is it. And, right. Um, so I was on staff down there for four years and... In the midst of that time, there was a couple folks who started some conversations back in my hometown, and mm. I got to be a part of some of those, not really thinking I was going to move up here and, and join, join staff or start a staff. And, and for 10 years, I've gotten um, to be the area director now in Broomfield and Adams County, and yeah. oh, it's been an absolute <clears throat> adventure. And places of crazy fate. I mean, we've had years where it's like, we don't know if we're getting paychecks. We don't know. We don't wow. know what's going to happen next. Um we're just over and over in so many different ways. God has just shown up and has, and has just reminded me and reminded us, like, I've got a plan for this and mm. just trust me. And, oh, it's been such, it's been so fun. So, yeah. yeah, I'm hearing so many different themes in there, themes of obedience, of discipline, um, that are practices that a lot of us really suck at. <laughs> yeah, well, me too. Right. He just keeps pushing me. Yeah. To, to well, what is what has that been like for you though? I mean, just developing that skill over over time and um why why is this important? Like why why are those different practices important for you? Oh man. Well, I I think there's there has to be a piece uh, for all of us, I think that follow Jesus of 
what he says to do, you should do it. And um, yeah, hopefully not out of some cosmic sense of eat your peas. And it's this like begrudged journey towards God that just sucks, you know. Oh, hopefully it's it's invitational life and that, that Jesus is life and everything that he says, the commands that he gives, the obedience that he asks for, ultimately is because that's where he's leading us is, is mm. to life to the full. And I don't think that means, you know, frolicking in fields of flowers and unicorns yeah. and rainbows and happiness all the time. Sometimes I think there there's an importance to suffering. And if Christ is life, suffering surely is a part of that because he suffered so dang much. Um, but I think in that, when we suffer, one of my favorite things that Brene Brown talks about is you can't mm. selectively numb. And I think one of the things I see in the person of Jesus all the time is he lived in the extremes of life pretty consistently. And whether it was, you know, losing Lazarus or seeing somebody risen back from the dead, like he just, he lived in that tension, what he experienced outside of himself and then inside of himself, especially as you watch Gethsemane in the final days. He just had this incredible capacity like that he himself would follow God in this walk of obedience that whether it's joyful or whether it's suffering, I'll go. And I think mm-hmm. in him then you see life to the full. And so I think we oftentimes in America, we love comfort. And since yeah. the advent of the air conditioner, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and before, but true. it's just we we comfort ourselves to, to a deficit. And yeah. So I think in, I think spiritually, you know, getting back to what I was saying before, I think that when when God says, "Here's what I want you to do," and what I'm calling you to, um, mm-hmm. if we're paying attention and listening and can hear those things, you got to do them because it's it's life, and that's yeah. that's where that's where the good stuff happens. Mm-hmm. So, how do you kind of um, enact these practices of of discipline and obedience in your life i mean because you know for a lot of us that can be really hard right um when you think of and not just in the spiritual sense but also just in a more holistic sense of exercise or you know eating healthy or you know this or that like it's it's hard sometimes to build habits that are healthy for us and so how what are some of the ways that you've really pushed for that yeah totally um man i think it always, it has to start small, right? And and you have to have a really yeah. clear idea of what it's going to be. Um, there's so much good stuff that's out there around habit forming. For me, there's a couple things that have been absolutely life changing. Um, you know, big shout out to Michael Hyatt for anyone who's a Michael Hyatt fan, but he has developed something called a, um, a full focus planner. Mm. And that for me has been something that has, I used to wake up about, about eight years ago, was doing a life plan with a friend and was telling him, I, I feel like I wake up every day like a golden retriever in the middle of the highway and I just start chasing whatever's moving mm. closest to me. And, and as soon as something else moves closer, I change direction. I finish the day exhausted and I lay down in the middle of the road and I wake up and I just start chasing stuff the next day. Yeah. Um, so whether it's like day-to-day tasks or big work projects or personal spiritual discipline type things right. and all of that, I just am this erratic, crazy person. Mm-hmm. And I think sitting down and, and trying to hone, hone in, what am I doing today? And how does that align with, with the direction I feel like God's calling me in and I think Michael Hyatt and then that particular full focus planner has done such a great job of aligning long-term goals with short-term goals with goals for today. Um, that's been a huge help for me. I think too, I mean, I'm going to be beating this wardrobe, I think for the next hour with you, Josh, but I think it's watching, it's having mentors in my life yeah. and people that I look to and I go, I, I just respect 
how they live. I respect how they are married or how they parent or how they follow Jesus or in many cases, all of it. And I go, what do you do? And I just, mm. I want to do the things that you do because I want to become like you. Yeah. And, and I think done at its finest, really all I'm seeing <clears throat> in the people that I admire is I'm seeing f- like flashes and elements of Jesus that I go, I just want to emulate those things and yeah. be like that because as a mentor, you ble- like you bless me or you're a gift to me to be less christian about that. <laughs> but you're a gift to me, and I want, I, I want that. But yeah. I, not just, just for myself. I want to be that for other people, and I just admire people that can live out of those places. So I want to become like them. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think that's like just a perfect transition to this, this talk of mentorship, right? And I... You know, I I said this in my introduction, we talked about this earlier, but these next few episodes are really just sitting on some of the important men. Um, Not that it's has to be men, it just happened to be that way, I guess. (laughs) But um, these these important men that have just dramatically shaped who I am today. And I've just been so fortunate, um, I think, to have experienced not just one, not just two, but so many just brilliant, um, God-loving life chasing men uh who kind of what you're speaking to like i just want to emulate right yeah um what you know young life is a lot about that right of introducing mentorship into um young children's lives to adolescent lives and what is the importance of that like why why do we need mentors in our life yeah oh man that's such a great question well i think there's a lot of ways to tackle that. I think there's, we could talk sociologically about why we could mm-hmm. talk about generational differences about why. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think one of the places I would point to and, and that one of the things I love about young life is they're pretty, we're pretty simple about stuff <laughs> in young <laughs> life of like, whatever Jesus did, we're just going to try and do that. And mm. Jesus was a rabbi and, and was in a rabbinical system in first century Israel. And that, that came with a whole lock stock. Here's, here's what that looks like. And so for a typical rabbi, they would set up shop, they would have credentials and kids, literally kids and their families would come to these rabbis, which, I mean, essentially let's just exchange the term mentor. Sure. And the idea was not just, you're a teacher, let me learn things from you. But fundamentally for a rabbi, the way you would select a rabbi is, is for the kid and also for the parents to go, who do we want our kid to be like? And that's mm. the rabbi that we're going to seek out. And so, so you get, I mean, so then you, you have this world that gets turned on its head when Jesus goes out into the world and he's going to Peter, he's going to John and he's going to them and saying, Hey, come follow me. That's really different. Cause usually it's a, Hey, can, can I come sit with you? And he's saying, come follow, this is a weird rabbi. Yeah. And, um, but ultimately I think in young life, it comes down to that idea of lost people don't know that they're lost teenagers who are unchurched or who, who aren't engaging things on a spiritual level, they, they rarely know it or care. And so how do we meet them? And we look at the person of Jesus and go, well, he just walked over, over to people and be yeah. like, Hey, what are you doing? Just come hang out with me. And, um, so I think that's, that's one thing that we just go, that was the master's plan for mm-hmm. evangelism was go into the world, be with lost people and invite them to be a part of your life and vice versa. And in the midst of doing that, hopefully if if things are flowing in the right direction, you're inviting them to become like you and not because Josh Korak is awesome or Zach Krieger is awesome, but because you go, Jesus is in me and I'm I'm trying to follow him. I want you to find that in me and then you become like Jesus. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to become like Jesus. 
So I think that's a huge part of it. And then, I mean, like I said, I think from there we can talk about fatherlessness. We can talk about how, yeah. like how crazy busy so many parents are and mm-hmm. how seldom families eat a dinner together around a dinner table. Yeah. Um, we can talk about how most kids, when they think about their coach or their teacher, which man, those like, if you're a coach or a teacher, thank you. Um, it sounds like Josh, you're going to have some coaches and teachers on the podcast in some later episodes. Right. Yeah. Um, and for some, there's just connections. My dad was a teacher for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just some connections that teachers and students have. And there's some other students who I think even teachers would say, it's so hard to connect with those kids. And a lot of kids will just report, when I go to school, when I go to practice, I just have an adult demanding things from me and yelling at me and mm. telling me to perform, perform, perform. And I think one of the things, too, where I go, mentoring is different. And some teachers and some coaches get this, and it's glorious to see people that live this way and think this way. But that our job is not just to teach performance, but that our job is to teach life yeah. and, and to teach how to live. And um, so I think that's that's a huge part of it, too, is most kids are in the world of adults that they exist in and swim in. They largely are hurt by adults and want nothing to do with adults. And mm. that leaves them in this really precarious place because now, like, who's going to teach you how to live? And yeah. I mean, YouTube's awesome, <laughs> but it can only go so far. Yeah. So. yeah. I mean, you brought up so many great things in that. You know, I think it's hard for me sometimes, you know, trying to be more culturally, culturally aware um, of my own privilege and what I've grown up in and you know I've been so fortunate like I think of my coaches from high school Terry Wachowski Ben Herschelman Ben Anderson um and and several others who did those same things you just talked about didn't just push me to perform didn't just push me to achieve and just to do the sport they taught me how to live life right and using sports as that kind of bigger metaphor for life and and did such a wonderful balance and so for me it's like oh this is just how all sports are and and at the same time it wasn't you know I think of growing up so they were they were my cross country and and running coaches and climbing coaches and uh, for a while, I did baseball growing up, which I know you did too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's just a totally different atmosphere, at least it was for me growing up. And I remember going into high school, I started with baseball and was like, this is just not working for me. Um, coach-wise, it was just a lot more of that performance demanding. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that's what drew me to Young Life is just the fact that I had so many adult mentors speaking into me and showing me how to do life I was like yes this is just what I know and what I've and and so when I was able to eventually transition to more of a leader role I was like wow this is so much more difficult (laughs) yeah for real (laughs) right because that's just not everybody's experience and I, I think man I was just so lucky um and there are so many out there who just don't get that yeah totally right totally well, and I think it's so, I was just talking with one of our Young Life leaders the other day about this, that we culturally, I mean, I grew up in the 90s. And so mm-hmm. it, like every kid that I knew in the early 90s, you grew every Friday night, it was TGIF on yep. like, Channel 7 or whatever it was. It was like Family Matters and Step by Step and Full House was in the rotation there for a while. And in Classics. all of those shows, you have like this these multi-generational families living together or these these mm. family dynamics and na- and a lot of times like neighbors were a huge character in yeah. in the show because oh, they just yeah. would drop in and 
um, we were just laughing. I was so, I'm a huge Star Wars fan and mm-hmm. I like, I mean, you may have to bleep me out a few times as I talk <laughs> about this, but the, what, like, what they did with Luke Skywalker and Rey, I think was just a total disaster and yeah. so sad, but I think really captured for me. That's how we're, we're seeing mentors now in the, in the seventies and eighties, when you have Yoda and Luke, mm-hmm. Yoda is this revered sage who <clears throat> has this wealth and st- like of knowledge and not just knowledge, but experience. Like he can really take Luke somewhere mm-hmm. and fast forward to the year, you know, 2020. And here we have freaking <laughs> Luke Skywalker just telling Ray to piss off and that there's nothing good about the world and that yeah. he, sh- he should just quit while she's ahead. And, and I think it, it's, it, you know, just a microcosm, but even watching TV shows anymore or the books or the stories sure. that are popular, so many of it. I mean, Hunger Games is a great example of you're this abandoned group of kids that you just have to figure out how to survive in the world. That's a pretty typical storyline for this generation mm-hmm. of kids. And, yeah. and I think that affects then how they view and understand mentoring in their life of, I think for, for the average kid, they're like adults are meant to be seen with a lens of cynicism mm. and um, caution. Yeah. And I think so few kids have excellent experiences with adults that just it makes this extra hurdle for this for gen z and i think for um for millennials too to a degree of i just i I don't naturally seek out wisdom or older people because i Mm -hmm. just don't necessarily trust what's there and it's just it's i think it's heartbreaking and is unraveling some things the beautiful thing though is the antidote is so simple because Mm. people are freaking amazing and i think for kids that get around adults who care or older people who care or are cool or are worth emulating it's not hard to regain that ground and go, yeah. oh, there's wisdom that I cannot find on my own or in yeah. my group of friends or my generation. Like, I need older people yeah. in my life. And so That is so fixable. interesting, though, because you're totally right, like, how media has just shifted in that sense. Like, I think of, you know, growing up reading Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, totally. all those different stories where you have Gandalf and Dumbledore and these just wise leaders that they respected that they went to for for work uh not work wisdom and um and for advice and for for guidance and then now i think uh, i'm just trying to think of some popular stories nowadays i think of like 13 reasons why you know a group of high school students who are just figuring it out all on their own and having to keep all these secrets i think of oh god what's another percy jackson i mean that's a relatively newer story and you know again kids abandoned by their godly parents and having to do these adventures and quests all by themselves and i think on the one hand there there is something if if we could take something positive out of that it's it's the the idea that there's something we can learn from from our younger folks right that (laughs) maybe we were neglectful of in earlier generations and it it definitely pushes away this mentorship role. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Well, and I think for older generations to understand some of that dynamic, I mean, for, for anyone out there listening, that's over the age of 25, I think for you to understand there's a responsibility that you have to the generations coming up under you that you would take the first step towards them. Mm. And most adults are terrified of teenagers because we, we don't want to go back to being teenagers again. We survived it once. That was plenty. But I think for, for, for adults in the world to understand anytime you see a teenager on the street, anytime you see them in a store, 
a smile, a friendly nod, you know, whatever it takes just to, I mean, to spread that goodwill to those kids. But more than that, and I think especially for followers of Jesus, um, I don't think everybody's called to work with teenagers, but there's this natural rhythm to life where I think part of why God set up human beings to live in generational systems was so that wisdom and knowledge and experience can be passed down. That's something we're all engineered for at a biological mm-hmm. level. And so what, what does it look like to understand we've got generations of kids that are growing up in a world where they don't trust adults. And it's always been the onus on adults to take the first step towards kids. Mm-hmm. But man, now more than ever, seek out a kid and let them know that you care about them and that they belong in this world and that they're loved and they have Uh, a purpose. Man, most kids just don't know that. And to hear that from somebody older than them, it goes a long way. Yeah. Well, you know, I was just sharing this earlier with you. There, there was a statistic I read from the, the Trevor project, um, that said that just even having one supportive adult in the lives of LGBTQ youth specifically, um, reduces rates of suicide by yeah. 40%, yeah. um, which is just insane, you know, so intense. Um, because just having one support of adult like that, just that alone just blows my mind that for yeah. some, for some kids, they don't even have just one support of adult. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What, um, what have you noticed in terms of your work with young life and just your work with kids over the years? Like, how do you see mental health showing up over the years and how has it changed? Oh, totally. I mean, that's a couple questions in one, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, huge shifts. And I, you know, my wife and I talk about this all the time of, of what is driving, what's driving all this. But I think the rise, particularly in anxiety and depression, um, is alarming. Um, so, and some of that I think could be really awesome and healthy because maybe it's just that we're learning better how to talk about it and it's always been there, but it's been hidden because culturally it's just not, it's not a great American theme, you know, to talk about anxiety and depression, but huh. maybe it's been there the whole time or maybe it is coming out of left field and getting worse all the mm-hmm. time. Um, but at any, at any rate, that's, that's becoming overwhelmingly a bigger issue. It seems yeah. like year by year for kids and and what we see, obviously, I think um, Columbine High School happened my sophomore mm. year of high school. But yeah. prior to that, the thought, I mean, suicide would happen, but, you, I mean, few and far between. And mm. as a teenager growing up, I'd never, I, I didn't know of anybody that had committed suicide. And you ask a kid at, at any given middle school or high school about it, and they can rattle off three kids, most of which, most of those three, they'll have a personal connection to somehow mm. somebody I played football with or somebody yeah. that was in my third period math class. But, but the way that that then affects a kid and we, we talk and do training on um, cluster suicides that when a suicide happens in a yeah. community that all of a sudden it just raises awareness for all these other yeah. kids that are struggling and, and that maybe multiples happen, all of those things. Oh, they're just, they're terrible. But yeah. I think we're seeing greater instances of that, of that. And, and just like you said, I think there's so there's so many incredible when you when you look at the st- statistics surrounding mentoring, just what putting a caring adult does in a kid's life is it's mind boggling. And I think too the the thing that blows me blows my mind away the most is CSU did a study that came out. It must have been 2012, 2011, and um, they one of the report statistics that they came out with was um, can women mentor young men? Can men mentor young women? Mm 
can you be straight and mentor an LGBTQ kiddo or vice versa? Like, yeah. and basically it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you're 80, it doesn't, it doesn't matter your sexual orientation. It does not, what matters is do you care about a kid yeah. that drives every other statistic on mentoring that there is. And yeah. it just makes it a layup in so many ways to be like, it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. Go love a kid and you're going to change somebody's life. And so anyway, I've wanted no, to ask you a question, but no, no, that's great. I mean, I think you can relate some of that back to counseling too of like, and I think part of it, part of that is there's some truth in that. And part of it is like, there's just such a need for it that it almost just doesn't matter. We just need somebody. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I struggle with this a lot in my, my own practice where right now I'm working in a internship where, gosh, I mean, at <sighs> 90% at least of the people coming in identify in the LGBTQ yeah. community. And for me, you know, I identify as heterosexual, cisgender, right? And so, you know, it's harder for me to make that connection initially, or at least in their eyes it is. And so for a while, it was this almost imposter syndrome of like, can I even help yeah. these people? Like, do yeah. they even want to work with somebody who mm-hmm. isn't a part of that community and can't relate in a in a very experiential sense? And yeah. it's like, well, they just need somebody, yeah. right? Um, and they, they just need some support, right? And so, you know, research has shown that, you know, kind of the same things. It just doesn't really matter yeah. um, who you are or what you identify or it's just showing up, being intentional. And, and that's what matters. Yeah. And, um, and sorry, I wanted to jump in on, uh, also this talk of suicide and, you know, school shootings and, and I think you're right. You know, I was just talking with my counselor the other day about this actually. Um, and cause we had just found out I was about to go into session with him and he's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just need a minute because my last client just told me that there was just a school shooting in yeah. Denver like five minutes ago. Yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, I haven't even heard of it yet. Like, and especially in Colorado, that is such a huge thing. And we were talking about, like, where did this come from, right? I mean, obviously, kind of really, Columbine was kind of the big starting point to this. But, like, before Columbine, this wasn't a thing. Yeah. And for now, it's, like, yearly, right? I mean, oh, yeah. if not more. Yeah. Um, and And we talked about just the transition from the idea of, like, serial killers from mass murders um, to more of this collective um, killing, yeah. right? This idea of either a school shooting or a mass shooting, right? Where it's kind of just a one-off, right? Yep. But it's with more people. And just that that transition, it's so devastating and inexplainable and and just heartbreaking. Like, why? Like, what? Ugh, this transition is just so interesting yeah. on the one hand. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm still just almost wrapping my own head around this. But, like, it, it is a thing where, like, more and more, you know, growing up in high school, for me even, I my first experience of suicide was, gosh, one of my friends who introduced me to Jesus, uh, his name was Xavier, um, died by suicide when I was a junior in high school. Mm. And, and you, you mentioned earlier, like there was two others who died by suicide shortly after from the same school, because it does kind of set off this chain reaction almost of like, Oh my God, well, we can see what the effects are. And, and now we're going to we're going to do it too almost and yeah well and <clears throat> maybe some of that too i mean just to to loop some things together i think mentoring is so dang hard cuz this yeah. is i mean kind of what you were saying earlier too it, it's it's great when you're being mentored and then when you turn around to mentor other people mm. <laughs> it's so messy and 
And I think to to understand the the world that these kids live in and their day just the day to day stress that they carry is so heavy. And and I think again, w- one of the things that we need, like at a meta story level for America, yeah. but especially in the world of teenagers, is most kids don't know how to engage suffering. And we were talking about this earlier mm-hmm. with Jesus, that he yeah. really, he held the tension in life between things. And I think most kids, when they experience suffering, that's just not a marketable face to put on Instagram. And yeah. so you got to hide those things. And and it's just like a shaken soda can. And, and for most kids, if, if they don't have examples of how to suffer well, it like it's gonna come out somehow. You just can't mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't hide that. And it part comes of out in depression. It comes yeah. out anxiety. Yeah, and I and I think for you know again for adults, it's the war drum that I have to beat, man. That that kids need to know how to suffer, and kids need to know how to engage depression. And I think so many adults just consider themselves you know lo- knocked out of the race because they're battling depression and right. anxiety. Man, if ever there was a generation that needed those folks, I mean, there's, you know, there's a talk here for sure about health and making sure that you're in a space to have something to offer. But understanding your anxiety and depression is something you have to offer, not something you have to also shove away. Kids need to learn how you're engaging that. And, oh, it can be, it can be a huge gift. But again, one of those, like for such a time as this, we need folks who are willing to talk with kids at at that Mm -hmm. level that. And especially in in this in the spiritual world and the Christian world, we can be so Ned Flanders all the time of like, yeah. hey neighbor, life's great, and that's just not <laughs> reality. All yeah, the time. this idea of toxic positivity. Yeah, totally, right? totally. Yeah, can you speak more into that? This idea of um, can you just speak more? I guess to just maybe an overall Christian culture of toxic positivity. Not that this is exclusively by any means, but maybe in a larger sense of how it's viewed. Um, and how it can sometimes come off of oh, this idea yeah. of toxic positivity of, and then on the other hand, shame, right? And how shame plays a role in the church. I mean, those are oh, kind of two spectrums, but yeah, those are simple. We'll knock this out. In a minutes, Josh. <laughs> um, well, I think, um, when I, when I see, it's so funny, kids are like sharks and they can smell blood in the, mo- oh, blood in the water a mile away. Oh, and sure. So I think I think that toxic positivity is one of those things that kids will immediately start rolling their eyes and be like fake. That's just fake. You can tell yeah. that it's fake. And and this is not a generation that puts up with much, you know, much fake if they identify it as fake. Mm-hmm. Um so I Which think, is also funny because there's fakeness all around on yeah, social media. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> it's this weird dichotomy. Yeah. But I think, you know, and I think that toxic positivity can take a lot of faces in the spiritual world of like when we talk about beliefs or scripture stances on things if it's this lock airtight no room for doubt no room for deconstruction this is just a generation that goes i don't buy it like it just it cannot Mm. be that neat of a bow on top of that neat of a box that that's just not what my life experience is it's it's a mess and you can't address the mess for me and with me i just it's fake i can tell and Mm -hmm. so so I think that, you know, I, and I think, yeah, the church for sure has has a really rough reputation. Most of the time, I think that is most churches haven't earned it. And most youth pastors and youth groups haven't earned the reputation. They've just inherited it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, I mean, when I think of the youth pastor at the church where I attend or many of the youth pastors I know who have become friends over the years, um, young life leaders, 
Youth for Christ, I mean, so many people get it and are in the trenches and are doing support groups for parents of LGBTQ kids and are mm-hmm. talking about anxiety. I mean, but there is this stigma of, oh, if you're particularly a Christian, I, I just don't have time for you because you're just yeah. full of BS. And that's just, it's <laughs> it's a bummer. But I think also a chance to, when when you experience a person in a relationship, you start to see it with a totally different lens and you go, oh, this is amazing. I thought it was this way, but or this one way, but it's not. And um, so, yeah. Ask me a little bit more about the shame piece you were getting at. That sounds exciting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think... Hold on. Here goes Luna. Oh, big stretch. Oh, <laughs> and there she goes. She, uh, she just owns this house. We're just, it's her world and we're living in it, honestly. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think shame is just such a prevalent manufactured emotion in our, in our society today. And I think it really shows up in Christianity for, for probably reasons better that you could explain than I could, but, you know, thinking of areas in regards to sexuality in regards to, um, you know, maybe substance use in regards to just mental health overall, things like depression, things like anxiety. Um, how do you, how have you seen shame show up in, from this context of the Christian community? Oh man, gosh, (laughs) that's such a good question. (laughs) Um, I, I mean, it for sure plagues kids who are trying to follow Jesus. Um, I, I think there's just this sense of if you're a Christian, you should have your act together. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I get to work with a lot of teenage dudes who are engaging sexual, their sexuality in so many things for the first time, and they're just wrecked. And I think, I think oftentimes, like the, the world that I grew up in, um, and, and the, I don't know, just the purity talks and the, yep. and the way we talked about sexuality when I was a kid growing up. Um, some of that was amazing and some of that was really harmful. And, yeah. um, I think, <laughs> I think most kids just beat themselves to death because they feel like they should be perfect or better or more. Mm-hmm. And there's just not room for most Christian kids to just say, I'm messed up. <laughs> I can't, mm-hmm. I just can't fix it through behavior modification. And yeah. It runs deeper, and I mean, I think all of those things have roots in the Garden of Eden. The first time God comes strolling through and says, "Adam, where are you?" He knows right where he is, and I think He's just trying to help Adam engage. Why are you hiding, dude? <laughs> you mm. don't. You do not need to hide from a God who loves you, and it doesn't matter what you've done. Like yeah. I'm still, and it's like the thing that I think we we miss so often, even in our young life theology, is. Um, you know, the fall, the sin happens, they eat the apple, blah, 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 blah. And God makes clothes for Adam and Eve, and he sends them out of the Garden of Eden. And then he's still right there talking with them and with Cain and Abel. And the, and so yeah. often we talk about, like, if you sin, God is removed <clears throat> from your life. And, yeah. and even the prologue to the narrative of God, you just have this piece of, like, man, things shift God is still right there with you, loving you, <laughs> sewing mm-hmm. you clothes. Like, what do you need? And he's still showing up doing that stuff. And I think most kids live plagued by this by this thought of, like, I have to fix myself to be presentable. And, man, it's just so – it's hard to wrench out of a kid's hands that shame – that that shame is not a good teacher. You yeah. Know? So, so. Mm. 
Well said. I mean, I think, I think that even bleeds over outside of Christian communities as well too. You know, just the, the idea of needing to fix myself to be presentable. I need to post the prettiest picture on Instagram because to show the real me would be not acceptable, yeah. right? Yeah. I need to have the best grades because if I don't, then what does that say about me, right? Yeah. Then I'm not successful, that I'm not doing well with my life, right? Um, there's so many messages I feel like kids these days have to tell themselves in order to make sense of it all yeah right yeah well and i think too as adults if we're doing a good job on the journey i mean i can flip through any number of pages in my journal from the last few months and Mm. find that same theme of i just really want to be good (laughs) josh at the end of the day i just i wish i was good and not good enough but good just good and and i think so often I mean, again, I go back to Genesis 1 through 4, and I just see a God who's going, I made you good. It's done. You don't Mm. have to worry about that anymore. And there's just something in me that refuses to believe that, that yes, you're a sinner. (laughs) Yes, yes, Zach, you have stuff that's messed up with you, but you fundamentally are created very good. And um, something in me bucks. And so I think in that as as a mentor, but man, f- far beyond being a mentor, as just a son of the king, that should be something that, and, and it is for sure, something that I'm wrestling with day to day. That's not just something yeah. that kids are dealing with, but I think that all of us, it's this existential crisis of why, why am I messed up and why is the world messed up and mm. what does God have to do with this? And so much of our historical theology says, yeah, it's your fault, you're messed up. When really, if we go back to scripture, there's this overwhelming theme of, yeah, things are messed up, but you are Mm. good and this creation is good. And I'm so in love with everything that's going on. Oh, we just, we missed that. And Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm wrestling with many of these things too, just in different ways. Yeah. Oh, that's great. How else, I kind of want to revisit, like how else you see, um, maybe in a more practical sense of like how you would see mental health issues showing up in young life, you know, what would it look like? How would you try to help support them through that? Oh yeah. You know, what were some of the things that you were seeing? Totally. Yeah. So, uh, literally last Wednesday, um, we're having club (laughs) club at a house in town and as club wraps up this kid who I haven't seen in four years, um, walks through the back of the club room and, and I was so excited to see him. And he was like, hey, you know, I, I didn't come to club tonight. I was at my girlfriend's house and I just realized I got the text about club tonight and she lives two doors down. And I just wanted to swing by and say hi. And, and then like he got really serious and like we like kind of shifted. He turned his back on the room. So it was like, this is just for this is why I really came. <laughs> and he goes, my, I'm a senior this year. My freshman year got pretty dark. And I, um, at one point was, was considering just being, being done and made a list of just asked myself who would miss me if I was gone. And I had a list of 10 people and you were one of those people. And I just want to say thanks for saving my life four years ago. And I haven't seen him since then, you know, in the last four years have not seen this. Was this one of our kids? Yeah. 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 It, It was amazing. And So I think, um, and and not a kid that I would say like, this is one of my core guys or a kid that we had so many great one-on-one conversations and we dove deep and we read the Bible together. You know, this is just a kid that we hung out a handful of times, but he knew that there was a caring adult out there in the world that, 
when things got tough and not a person that he saw every day or every yeah. week or, you know, once so every you're, four years. So what you're really saying is this, this was not a kid that you was in your active circle of kids yeah. that you supported. And yet he came to you four years later yeah. and said, because of what you did in my life, however minimal it was for you, it was obviously super significant yeah. for him yeah. and, and saved his life. Yeah. Mind blowing. Wow. So crazy. And I, yeah, <laughs> that's how I, wow. wow. I don't, I can't explain There's just that. no words. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, so there's, there's one practical story. I think, man, my, my campaigner groups, so I've got a group of guys that are seniors this year that I, you know, you and I got to mm-hmm. lead for a time together, but yeah. I've been with them since they were in sixth grade. And can you explain what campaigners is for my oh, audience? Oh yeah. Sorry for all no, those. No, that's okay. I'm talking like an insider. Sorry. Yeah. Just, um, uh, yeah young guy. life's weird and <laughs> is generally terrible at naming things. <laughs> so we got our, we got our main organizational name, right? Young life. That's cool. Campaigner started in the 1940s when Young Life was founded, and initially it was called the Young Life Campaign. And so if you were a kid who loved Young Life and loved Jesus and you wanted to campaign for Young Life in your local school, you were called a campaigner because you campaigned for Jesus, Josh. How great is that? <laughs> so um, and, you know, 80 years later, we, we nobody has the guts to say, this is a dumb name. <laughs> we should rename it as small groups or something. Um, but it's it's a small group Bible study. And um, But generally, when we check in, one of the things that we do periodically, we'll rotate through a couple of things, but I, I have become a huge fan of the feelings wheel. Um, so I will yeah. bust out a feelings wheel with them and, and be like, we're all, you know, I want to know, and we're going to all check in with what are the two predominant things you're feeling. And particularly with teenage guys and, and guys in general, but particularly teenagers, they don't know what they're feeling yeah. most of the time. And so to give them space to go, here's all the feelings that we can think of. Yeah locate yourself and why are you feeling that way incredible to me how often guys begin coming to the realization of for the last three times we've done this i'm checking in as exhausted Mm. and the reason is because x y and z and that they start to track some of those things um and just they start noticing patterns but for all of them whether we're doing a feelings wheel or, or any other number of things the ways yeah. that they check in especially now senior year I've, I've got college i've got tests i've got a gpa i've got all this stuff mm-hmm. their level of anxiety and stress campaigners you know small groups <laughs> has become the place where i can like process that and and like it's okay to just feel terrified or alone or scared. Um, Mm -hmm. we can talk about that openly. And I I think for them, that's just been a really, really safe place. And one of the other pretty consistent check-ins that we'll do is we'll do like the four G's, how you doing with Mm -hmm. God, girls, grades and garbage in your life. Um, or we'll do the four F's family, faith, friends, and females. And, in all of those things, um, especially as they've gotten older, to say, hey, when we talk about girls or females, it's not just girls in your life, but we can talk about pornography and sexuality. What are those things? And that, it just is leveling the playing field for them on what's what's okay to talk about and what's not okay to talk about. Mm-hmm. And and I think for them to realize the list of things we can't talk about is pretty much slim to none. Um, this is a safe place to talk about anything. And the, the mental freedom that that gives them to talk about stuff alleviates um, a lot of the stress and some of the anxiety. And then I think, I mean, and, I, and there's a, it's a wide spectrum. So sometimes we have kids 
who they're just experiencing things that are clinical enough that we do love to have friends in the community who are therapists that we go, this is becoming beyond hey, our skills. Hey. To heal. Yeah, I see you. I see you. Cora. <laughs> um, this is beyond the skills of just an, a, a mentor, a non-clinical mentor. And mm-hmm. it's not a handoff of here's a hot mess. We're out, but it becomes such a great walk. And some of the, the greatest success stories in young life are kids who, it, it took a mentor in their life noticing like, hey, there's something really significant going on here and we need to get you some help. Let us also then connect you in, to be a bridge to, to a local mental health person. And then you're getting the mentoring and the relational care from the young life leader, from mentor, and you're getting this clinical care. And those two things combined, oh my gosh, mm. it's like rocket fuel to kids in, in their ability to engage life. And so... um so it's all it's all over, um, but I think for the typical kid, just creating room for conversation about real things is is huge, and and then I think having folks who are trained, um, man, and I think one other thing, Josh, that we can talk about is um, the the prevalence of trauma and yes, understanding. That's just what I was going to bring yeah, up. That's great. what I've been looking at. Great, because it, this conversation is reminding me of the adverse childhood experiences study. Have yeah, you are you familiar of course, with that? Yes. Yeah, and I'd just be so curious to like from like a research standpoint, not to like make these children uh, research subjects, but like just the impact that trauma has had yeah. on some of them and just to see what their ACE scores would be would totally. be so fascinating. Totally. And so for my audience, for those of you who haven't heard it, there was a study done. Um, oh God, when was it? Probably the nineties. I, I think. think. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should know this, but, uh, and since then there have been multiple studies to replicate these findings, but it, the ACE study, um, adverse childhood experiences speaks to a set of 10 questions that, Uh, clinicians will ask of these children of different adverse adverse experiences that they've been through um, typically referring to traumatic experiences right and so there will be questions about childhood abuse childhood neglect um, other issues such as you know one of the ones that unfortunately most kids can check off nowadays is um, you know were your parents ever divorced or separated like that in and of itself is one childhood adverse childhood experience it asks questions about, did anybody suffer from mental illness? Did anybody ever attempt uh, suicide? Did anybody um, ever go to prison or jail? So list of 10 questions, right? And with each question, um, what they have found is that the higher your score, the more at risk you are for different conditions, right? So for example, um, a somebody with a score between one and three for ACEs, uh, one in nine smokes, one in nine is an alcoholic, and one in 43 use IV drugs, and then one in 10, uh, one in 10 attempt suicide. Um, whereas, let's say somebody between four and eight ACE scores, um, it automatically increases substantially, right? So one in five will attempt suicide, one in 30 will use IV drugs, one in six will become alcoholics, and one in six will also smoke. Um, that's just this one quick statistic thing I pulled up here. But, I mean, you're just at so much more risk for early death, um, health and social problems, high-risk behaviors, social and emotional and learning challenges. I mean, the the risk just 
increase dramatically yeah. from these different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, one of the, one of the places I received some training, um, my friend Bethany Frakes, who's a young life leader, but, um, is also a licensed social worker, did a training with all of our young life leaders a couple years ago on just trauma-informed care. And so many dots suddenly started to connect as I was getting more and more of this training of, I had a couple kids, they were twins, twin mm -hmm. boys who had been adopted at a really young age. And they were really problematic kids in their behavior. Um, mm. And I love these dudes still to this day. They're total hooligans. Um, but I, but as we're doing this, this ACE and trauma training, I'm going, oh, this, this is helping me so much understand their brain chemistry and yeah. things that likely happened to them. I mean, they were abandoned in a, in a dumpster as wow. infants. Um, and so we don't know a lot about their backstory, but even that just, I mean, what did attachment look like for them oh, yeah. prenatal and then, you know, right after birth and which we know from research attachment yeah, is huge. It's nuts. Golly. And so, and so it, uh, uh, so many things collided all of a sudden where it's like, Oh, this gives me so much more grace for these dudes. And of mm -hmm. course they're, they're not just acting out just cause it's fun there's, there's trauma in their life. Yeah. And if I'm not aware of that, I do just get instantly ticked off because mm -hmm. I just want them to get in line. And, and it's that, but then it, 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 man, you just start surrounding kids and people with way more compassion too, because yeah. you want to dig into those pieces in their story, even if they're not known and are not things they can be verbalized, mm -hmm. but, but to understand in a teenager or in a kid, like, man, this was not your fault. You, yeah. it's, you, you didn't do anything wrong to get put in a dumpster as a baby, you right. know, and that, that is still affecting you at 18 years old. And of course you're oh, making and farther, you are, you Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the people, the adults I'll work with now, you know, I, I don't know if I've told you this, I'm, I'm certified as a trauma professional now. And oh, so wow. I, that's a lot of the work I've been doing. And, nice. Um, man, so many adults coming in years later from their trauma who are just like, I have just been struggling yeah. all my life because I haven't, you know, addressed yeah. this and how much it's physiologically changed them. Oh, right. Totally. But to be able to have somebody like a mentor, yeah. I mean, you know, I pulled up some other statistics from the CDC that I just want to read, um, about potential reductions of negative outcomes in adulthood from, early prevention when it comes to aces right so you start seeing significant decreases in things like depressive disorders asthma strokes heart disease ki uh, cancer kidney disease <laughs> diabetes so obesity substance use unemployment um education level health and i mean just yeah. so many different things yeah. it just just by having somebody totally it well, can reduce so much of that. Yeah. Risk. And I think to your point, so often as, as human beings, it, it's like asking a fish to describe water, my reality in the world that I live in, that's just what is. Yeah. And I think it often does take an observer from the outside. And I think having like having this level of trauma informed care mm. as mentors or as mental health professionals to be able <clears throat> to notice and put pins in things and go, Hey, I'm noticing this cycle in you or these behaviors in you. And that would lead me to believe blah, 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 blah. And I got to do this with these dudes. And it sounds like you've, you're now getting to do this all the yeah. time. But to go, there's, there's a strong possibility that it has ties to trauma that's happened. Yeah. And here's, some, here's just some gut reactions that I'm having in places that I would encourage you. And oftentimes it takes nudges like that for somebody to go, oh, maybe my reality, like maybe there's something more and maybe I need help understanding how to unravel some of this stuff and really deal with it. And then, yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what you're getting at is 
then then they do start pursuing help and then all these like changes changes become possible it's stroke mm. and asthma dude holy I cow know. what an amazing like not even just mental health stuff it's that's physical am- it's amazing. sociological health yeah. it's so many good things so i mean i think you're just speaking you know this speaks to a lot of hardship today what we've talked about and a lot of hope yeah yeah i think so well and i think i think for me too one of the other places that whether it's you know I, I live in the suburbs of Denver. Um, mm. But I think understanding trauma and understanding race and racism over the last yeah. few years, so many things are linked that, um, again, several years ago I was at a training, and, and one of the things that they, that they said was statistically um, the same 20% of kids get almost 80% of the mentoring services out there. And wow. it's either the bottom 10% of kids or the top 10% of kids. But the middle 80% of kids generally get what's left over. There's not wow. a lot of mentoring services for just the typical run-of-the-mill kid. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's when it, when it comes to kids of color, um, and especially as we're watching things demographically shift in suburban communities, yeah. it's this whole group and population of kids that can often get missed um, and mm-hmm. who are not seen. And I think for some of them, there's trauma. For some of them, just just how racism, and I think in our, I'll just speak for our community, right. racism can largely be so unaddressed for so many kids that it becomes this compounding trauma for them that they don't know where, where are the safe places to talk about this yeah. and who are the safe people to talk about it with. And, um, I mean, I think there's a qualifier to one of the things you said earlier. It doesn't matter, you know, your sexuality, your mm-hmm. age, blah, blah, blah. I think race can be one of those really hard things where it becomes very difficult to mentor somebody across racial lines if there's not a sense of racial understanding and right. what that looks like. And you can, well, you yeah. can mentor, but there's going to be limits yeah. on how far you can go and, so I think under, I mean, well, and I think that, that if I can interrupt yeah, that, yeah. that speaks to those other areas too. I think with LGBTQ, I think with veterans and military with trauma, um, if, if somebody's looking across from me and they're, they're questioning like, you know, if you haven't been through what I've been through, then how are you going to understand? Yeah. Right. And so this ties into race, this ties into so many things yeah. and, um, and that's hard. Totally. That's really hard. Well, and I think similar, I mean, I, there's, it's just so helpful to think through different different lenses i when i think through an lgbtq kiddo that i would mentor and hang out with if i'm so locked in that my experiences are reality Mm. i miss so many opportunities to really connect with that kid and i think that's what makes a a really Mm. good mentor really good mentor is i'm not so attached to my reality that i can't hear yours and understand yours and then mentor you on your turf and I, I think that's racism and it, it's just this weird anomaly, seemingly, at least in my story, of it can just be so pushed under the rug of like, well, that reality doesn't exist yeah. <laughs> because Martin Luther King happened and we're good. Right. And I think to go, man, I want to understand the yep. lived reality of somebody different than me. And then I want to meet you on your turf and and take your story for what it is. And then I want to love you and mentor you in that and with that and through that and I'm going to meet you there. I, I just, I think that's mm. so important. And trauma is, is no yeah. different. I have to understand trauma yeah. if I'm going to meet kids where they're at in their trauma. Yeah. And you're speaking to such good things. So it is one part taking the work ourselves to understand and to yeah. learn and educate ourselves. And then there's this other part of like, well, you're right. I don't understand. Like I haven't lived through what you've totally. lived through. There's no way. Nobody yeah. has. Right. So teach me. Yeah. Right. Help me understand. Yeah. That's what I do. And and there might be some pushback to the idea of, oh, now they have to teach you what they've been through. And like, 
But there's some truth in that, right? There is this idea of we're a narrative-driven society, and we need to tell our stories. Yeah. Right? Help me to understand. Help me to know what you've been through. Because, of course, I, I don't know. I haven't lived your life. Help yeah. me to understand. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think so and there's so much good material out there, too, that, mm. yeah, I think there at some point there has to be if we're being relational about it, there has to be like, I need to hear your story and I yeah. need to know where you're at. There's so much work on, on a mentor side of things too, of like, I can do a lot of homework um, mm-hmm. before I, I, one of our catchphrases in young life is earn the right to be heard or yeah. earn the right to ask a question. There's, you can do, you can do a lot of pre-work so uh, that yeah. you've earned the right to really ask yeah. that question from a and place of safety. Yeah, you're right. And there's so many good resources, like you said, and you know, what's let's let's wrap up with this what's um what's one book if you could pick just one that you would recommend that kind of encompasses some of what we've talked about today uh the bible roasted the bible. Just, i'm just kidding oh i'm just kidding well, i mean you're not wrong <laughs> <laughs> um man one of my man that's such a good question. i know um, you're a bookworm so i am a bookworm i we we have some apocryphal texts in young life and i think one of the ones that i come back to all the time and it it's not explicit about mm. lgbtq or race or whatever but i Isn't think the one i'm thinking um probably it's it's called the master plan of evangelism oh, wasn't is that what no, I was, thinking, thinking? I was thinking Bobby G. Oh, oh no, does. no, that's, I mean, that's fantastic yeah. as well. But the master plan of evangelism was a book written back in the late seventies by a guy named Robert E. Coleman. Um, it is not a titillating piece of prose <laughs> by <laughs> any means. It's very mechanical and dry. And his whole project was when we look at Jesus, who is he and how Mm. did he do it? And particularly with evangelism and discipleship, like what was, what was his plan? And, and at the end of the day, he just, he boils it down to Jesus had his 12 disciples um, who he poured the majority of his time and energy and teaching into. And then in those 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John that he would pull aside for some special, special situations. And then he had a 72, there were 72 disciples and they get talked about every now and again, mostly in Luke. Um, and that, that his, his modus was relationships and his Mm. modus was discipleship and, and people. And so I think with all kids, with whether we're, we're looking for mentors ourselves or whether we're looking to mentor other people, Mm -hmm. mentoring, I think done at its finest is not just something that we do with thumbs up going, yeah, this is a great thing. We should do it just cause I think it's ultimately something that should stem from looking at Jesus himself and going, we want to emulate this man and what he was about. And, and then I think then it becomes some of the creative fun of being a mentor in the world of today going, what about mass suicides and shootings? What about racism in the, in 2021? What about all these different things where you have to form fit and call and church history since for the last 2000 years has been trying to figure out in different cultural situations, how do we form fit to what we what we're looking at right now. And I think that's some of the fun, but I think if there is one book short read, um, it's so money, even, I mean, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a mentor type, it is still one of those books that will make your brain really squeeze really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's worth it. Yeah. Well, well said my friend. Um, I hate to have to jump off. I got to get into another session, but I so appreciate your time. Yeah. So appreciate your wisdom and, and your influence in my life. And I'm very, 
honor to have you share some of that with with my audience so well and not from a place of being condescending or pedantic but out of pure admiration and just as your friend i'm just so proud of you i'm proud to call you one of Mm. my friends and proud of the man that you are and the man you're becoming so it's an honor to be with you dude always Mm. so much love much love all right right. thanks zach you've ever the peace Mm.